Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the Grace Church of Ocala Sermon Podcast. We are equipping disciples who make disciples in Ocala, Florida. What follows is an audio recording from our Sunday morning worship gathering, and we hope that you will find it encouraging, challenging, and helpful. If you have any questions or would like more information about Grace Church of Ocala, please visit our home on the web, ocalagrace.org. Well, good morning, church. We're in John chapter 5 as we continue our series there, our song in the night. And as you turn there, John chapter 5, I was doing just a little bit of research this week, and we're going to talk about the highest authority. So I was thinking in the United States, what is the highest authority? Of these listed, and Bob, I know you know the answers to these, probably Miss Sue. So don't, you know. Let me go through it without, you know, getting upset at me. You know these names on a federal level. The CIA, the FBI, the Secret Service, and Homeland Security. That's a lot of authority. So the CIA is the acquisition and analysis of info. The FBI is basically law enforcement, as in the understatement of the hour kind of there, but they're with law dudes. The Secret Service, you think of them as protect the president guys, but they're really big into counterfeit check catcher dudes and ladies. Now, the Department of Homeland Security is anti-terrorism, border security, immigration, and customs. Came about after 9-11. Now, which one of those do you think has the most power? Let me put it to you this way. Let's look at their budgets. Because in America, that which we value, we throw money at, right? So the CIA has $14.7 billion budget. The acquisition and analysis of info is pretty, we value that. The FBI's budget is 8.3, and the Secret Service gets 2.2. Look at Department of Homeland Security. That's a lot of cabbage. $66.4 billion. That's $91.6 billion of authority. <laughs> That's a pretty good chunk of money. Every one of us, any given time, under any one of those headings, even on a, it's just let's say on a federal level, we live in a world where we're under authority. Now, what your personal opinion of each one of those departments is, regardless, they exist, and they do a lot of things. So it's, we do exist, in a, even in the United States, under a lot of authority. And I'm not even going to broach the subject of the presidential election coming up where we're voting for that kind of stuff. But who would we assign of us under their authority? So we will find out that Jesus followers this morning and after reading and studying John chapter 5 will declare Jesus' authority. Because Jesus kind of showed up in the same kind of world under a Roman authoritarian's I, what was going on at the time. The Roman budget for land acquisition was pretty massive. And when Jesus showed up, he will say, I am the authority. And those who follow him, what then is their relationship to him? To declare that authority. So as we turn to John chapter 5, 
We're starting in verse 1. Jesus is going to talk about probably one of the most poignant subjects this morning. And it hits home quite well the authority we assign to tradition. So John chapter 5, verse 1, pick up with me there. We'll go through verse 17. After this, there was a feast of Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. There in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda which has five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in a temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Jesus said, let's set the stage. So Jesus shows up into Jerusalem for the second time. It's been some time since he's been to Jerusalem. There's a Jewish feast going on. It's a big party time because the Jews have one thing they do. Clear from Gen- when the, God set them up, he said, you're going to party quite often and you're going to do it in remembrance of me. There's only going to be one of them that's really, really sad and that's the Day of Atonement. But the rest of them, I want you to get together. I want you to party. If it's one thing Jews do well, it's do that. Man, I would love if we could do that. Man, party, celebrate God more often. Let's have a good time. So there's a feast going on. There's a celebration going on. So Jesus shows back up, and he finds himself in Jerusalem, and it just happens to be on the Sabbath. And so he walks into this gate, and there's a pool nearby, and there's a multitude, a whole bunch gobs lots of people that are, cannot walk, cannot move. They're invalids. It's kind of a generic term. But this is where they all hung out around this pool, that they thought that when the pool, the springs in the pool would start to bubble, the first one in got healed. So here's Jesus. He's at the at Jerusalem. He's at this pool, and he meets this guy. He meets a guy that's been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years would be a long time to not be able to walk. But get this: at the time, the life expectancy of a male in Jerusalem was a whopping 40 years. That's a <laughs> Pretty much all of his life. So he's been here. Jesus walks up and says, uh, hey, uh, you know what? You want to be healed? And the guy responds in a way that's, that's, it's, yeah, you know, do you want to be healed? And this isn't necessarily out of the realm of hope, out of the realm of reason for us. To find people that would want to get in water because it boils up at a certain time that we would get healed. I remember as a kid, there's this little dinky town about the size of Newbie's Corners. And we would ride our bikes out there to get something to drink and come back. And the place was called Magnetic Springs. 
Now, Magnetic Springs got its start in the late 1800s, around 1879, and it was where, guess what happened in the springs? You could get in the springs and get healed. And people came all over from the nations around to go to what now is a little dinky spot on the map. But it made its spot on the map and where we rode our bicycles to is because these springs could heal you. They didn't tear down the hotels because, by the way, they came up with vaccines for polio and stuff. And when polio came out, magnetic springs went under. You mean the springs don't work? Oh, yeah, go get vaccinated. But anyhow, they didn't tear the hotels down from this grand place till 1980. So before we get a little bit critical of a guy that's been 38 years invalid, sitting by a pool in Jerusalem, waiting for the waters to turn up so he could get healed, we have a decent replica of this even in Ohio. It's the object of the hope. I can be healed if I get in the water. So when Jesus walks up to him and says, do you want to be healed? He's challenging his object of hope. Where is your faith going to be? And of course, you give the guy some credit. He doesn't know who this Jesus guy is. And he mentions, I just can't get in the water in time. Do you imagine if your tradition was, hey, you got to get in line, or you don't know when they're going to kick the boilers on, or the little bubblers in the bottom. And so you're not feeling too hot. And the tradition has it, the first one in the water gets healed. Imagine living a life like that. Okay, kick the bubblers on, throw somebody in. Well, it worked, it didn't. So this guy's been here at least a while. He's been an invalid for 38 years. You imagine your hope that if you couldn't walk, how long would you bet on somebody fixing you at the hospital on something, let's say, that you had your hope set on it, whether it was true or false, how you would set your hope on that? Let's say it was even valid. If you can get in line, there's only one vaccine left to make you be able to walk. Would you be in line to get that? You know we all would. So Jesus challenges, who do you, how are you setting your hope? So Jesus says, get up. Take your bed and walk. The guy does. Jesus loves this guy. How do I know Jesus loves this guy? He sees a need. What's a guy's need? Pretty obvious. He can't walk. He meets that need without expecting anything in return. What did Jesus get out of this transaction? Not much. Not really. It really just starts the avalanche of kill Jesus day. So he loves him. Sees a need. Meets a need without expecting anything in return. Do we do that kind of stuff? Imagine the need you see in Jesus, like, hey, you've been, you're 38 years invalid. You think that water's going to do it? I'm here. I'm God. I'll show you. You want to get healed? Yeah, I can't get in the water. Cool. Get up. So the dude does. Listen to this. The power of God's word in our life gives us the power to obey. We went through some of this this morning. Don't miss this. You want to get up? Well, sure. Duh. It's like the Bill Anvil. Here's your sign. Yeah, I want to get up, then get up. When Jesus speaks, gives the command, the guy has the power then to obey. Not only does he love him, but then love is then transitioned into a way to meet a physical need that turns into a spiritual conversation, just like they did last week. So the man gets up and walks. Imagine the transition from blind adherence to tradition of 38 years to meeting Jesus. 
38 years of being an invalid, hoping the water would cure you to one day meeting this guy you would have no idea about. You don't know him from anybody else, and all of a sudden you're walking. That's a big day. So the Jewish leaders come to him, and they say, Hey, according to our super rules of righteous behavior on the Sabbath... Because we read from Nehemiah. Nehemiah is like the really cool dude, the prophet, that like, if you didn't listen to Nehemiah, he'd beat the snot out of you. And do you find that kind of humorous? Hey, guys, why are you all doing all this work on the Sabbath? Close the stinking gates. We're making money, though. Close the gates or I'll knock you out. Then the guys, the commerce dudes that show up are like, hey, we'll just camp out because maybe they'll open the gates. We can make a good profit off the Jews on a Sabbath. What are y'all doing out here? If I lay hands, you were here tomorrow, I'm laying hands on you. <laughs> I love that. Nehemiah would have been like, yeah, vote that guy in if you like him. <laughs> you know, unless he doesn't like you. But anyhow, so God's serious about the Sabbath. In fact, and you do not obey the Sabbath, according to God's rules, it was a capital crime. You could die from violating this. Is God serious about the Sabbath? Absolutely, and all day long. Is he today? Absolutely, and all day long. Because the Sabbath means take a break from what you are normally doing, and you're going to pay attention to me. So the Sabbath is important, but then the rabbi, the Jews, come along, and they're like, hey, you know what? God's rules really aren't enough. They're only like this tall. Let's make a 45-story skyscraper out of all the rules so we can really test how good you are on the Sabbath. Sounds preposterous, doesn't it? But don't we do kind of the same way? Hey, we're going to go to church in the morning. Good. We'll go get your church clothes. Who, who grew up with church clothes? How many got beaten for ruining your church clothes on Saturday night? I did. Okay. I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong, but I'm saying, hey, the clothes isn't what it's about this morning. Was it about walking when Jesus met this dude? He's going to transition here to amazing spiritual truths. But we're like, hey, you guys, are, you made all these really crazy rules that you couldn't pick up a mat. Well, we got cool rules, too. Hey, do you guys sing hymns or not? How do you sing the hymns? Do you guys use a pipe organ? You know, really only good churches use pipe organs. Oh, wow. Somebody came in with that hairdo. That was so 1970s. Where is your polyester suit with a bad tie from 1968? I'm making fun of these things, but how many of you ran across people that have been like this? I come to know Jesus later in life, and I show up in a church that is steeped in this stuff, and I did not know, back then a mullet was cool, that a mullet would only allow to go so long. And then Bosworth was really cool, and he cut lines in the side of his hair. I'm dating myself, but this is what happened to me. I go, to, and I go to the barber, because the whole wrestling team was cool, because you're part of the wrestling team, you want to fit in. So I cut lines in the side of my hair. So I'm a new Christian, I'm following God, and I'm wrestling, and I'm like wrestling with some Christian dudes, and we're knocking some people out. You know, we're, I'm liking this Christian stuff. I show up to work, I show up to church on Sunday, and I am berated. I'm like, woo, woo. What is going on? As a 16-year-old, I didn't understand. Now I understand a little better what was going on. But the rules of meeting God on their day, I didn't fit in because my hair was a little goofy. And my hair is a little goofy still today, isn't it? Right. Yeah, Miss Sue agrees with that. 
So we, we kind of do the same thing. Now, here's what Paul says. Hey, when you go to church, I want it to be organized. And ladies, do not blow your hair like this. And guys, you do this. What is the point? If you show up to meet God and you've got a neon sign that says, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me, you're out of line. If you're there and you're just getting to know Jesus and you don't quite understand that you got to look at me, look at me, look at me, and then somebody else comes up and says, Man, when you come in, everybody's like, mm, you're kind of, everybody, you're drawing. If you bring attention to yourself, then assisting others to look at God, there's the problem. What's the problem in Nehemiah about the Sabbath? You guys are still doing commerce on Sunday and it's about God. What is the principle we apply here today? Hey, come in as you are. But as soon as it's all about bringing attention to you instead of what we're doing, we're going to talk to you. So the Jewish leaders have these rules or super righteous behavior. You can't carry a bed today. The man, I like this. Hey, I don't know. The guy who says, get your bed and walk, told me to walk. You're an invalid. <laughs> yeah. Who told you you could walk? The guy that healed me. No, 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 no. You, who told you that you could sin today? Look at the transition. Now, if you were the invalid that hadn't walked for 38 years, if I'd been that guy and I was carrying the mat, and they were like, who told you you could sin today? I'd probably hit him with the mat. You see the mat? I can't, I, I can carry it. You're talking about why I'm carrying a mat? I'm walking 38 years, no walking, and you're not noticing that. But they're like, no, who caused you to sin they take, they don't even pay at least a bit of attention to the healing, but they're like, hey, you have responded to the authority of someone who has caused you to sin. And Jesus finds the guy later in the multitude, and he says, hey, see, you're well. Yeah. Sin no more. What's Jesus getting at? I took care of your legs, buddy, but there's a bigger issue in life that will supersede any health issues you ever have. You're going to have to deal with sin somewhere along the line. I love how Jesus comes back around. There's always truth communicated. You're going to do it God's way on God's terms. And get this, the love of God reached to this guy's life when he had no idea who he was. He reacted to it, so he obeyed God's word. Good. And then Jesus says, hey, Go and don't sin anymore. Stay. You're going to have to deal deal with this sin problem. And what does the guy do? He surely doesn't start a choir of loving Jesus time. He goes to the Jewish guys. Hey, it was Jesus. And then hits the road. No faith evidence anywhere with this mat carrier dude. The invalid of 38 years. The man was happy to have his physical needs met. Not a spiritual conversation. John doesn't record any spiritual conversation. Jesus took it there and went from the physical to the spiritual, just like he did last week. So the guy's like, oh, got me some Jesus healing. And I'm good to go. I'll see y'all later. I'm a Matt carrying fool. How many of us react the same way? God, I really need to get my car fixed, and I'm not sure if I can get it fixed. Here, well, God will work with you to help you get your car fixed, and you're good to go until next Sunday. Good to go until the next personal crisis. We go from crisis to crisis to crisis. How do we react then when Jesus meets us? Even in the little things or the big things. We stop and say, wow, that was a God thing. That was a cool God moment. 
So Jesus is really going to turn up the heat on challenging this authority of tradition. Because Jesus is, by the way, the authority. God mandated that they treat the Sabbath differently than any other day of the week. But all of that was to point to God. Not the rules. If Jesus is God like he claims to, he was the one that said, hey, I'm resting on the Sabbath to set you guys an example for this. Hey, I want you to follow me or you're going to die because of what you don't or do do on the Sabbath. Jesus is kind of the Lord of the Sabbath. We read that scripture. He shows up on the scene and says, you all missed it. I'm still working on the Sabbath. It all points to me. When we walk in this morning, is our worship gathering the same thing? Are we here because of what God's going to do in our lives or is it about us? The worship gathering that we do here is this, it falls underneath the same guidelines. The God of the Sabbath is also our Savior, and he's also the ruler of the universe. He's also God himself who says, I've died for you, I'm coming back. And he's also sitting at the right hand of God, ruling everything. Kind of fits all of those criteria. And I like Jesus' response. I work today. My father worked today. What are you doing? I'm still working. Just boil it down to this. They're mad at this, at this guy for picking up his mat and walking. Who caused you to sin? You're, not, you're, not, you're doing unapproved work. Jesus finally ends this segment with, I was working today. My father was working today. They don't see the healed man and what he's doing. Do we do what we do here or whatever your normal Sunday looks like and take a step back and say, what did Jesus do? What did God do in the last three weeks with our participation at Grace Church of Ocala? Pastor Michael did some good singing. Pastor Todd actually had a cogent thought for 35 minutes. He's getting better. Or is it... God worked on a Sabbath. God worked when we set aside time to specifically worship him with other people, and I saw him do something. That's why it's back on the other connection card, This Morning God. We want to stress that every Sunday. So Jesus has addressed his authority over tradition, and now he's going to address his authority as God. Move to John chapter 5. Verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling, him, calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. I love John, because John gives us cliff notes of the deity of Jesus in these little nuggets. John 5, 18. Jesus says he's equal with God, and the local leaders get mad and want to kill him. By the way, according to Old Testament law, if he was wrong in claiming that, they were right in killing him. People we will run across in culture will say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Okay, well, I'm going to claim to be the president of the United States. And all of you are going to follow me around Ocala this week and say, hey, he's the president of the United States. And I never deny it. You would call me goofy. You claim authority, and people say, wow, you are not the chief of police. Well, I say, yeah, I am. And you never deny it? Do you understand what Jesus is doing? 
You all want to kill me. Okay. Here we go. We're starting. We're going to transition from you don't really like me to now capital offense. And by the way, what's the end of the story for him in their eyes? Death. Because he claims to be king of what? What's on the cross? King? Yes. He's claiming deity. Don't ever forget that. Not only does he die as your savior, he dies as your king. So he claims equality with God. What do you say? Is God Jesus? Is Jesus God? You're going to set yourself apart by agreeing to that from a lot of people. Because if he's just a good guy that had long hair and possibly a long beard, to kind of help people, he was an incredible caterer. He could take just a little bit of fish and feed 5,000 people. Or was he God? What do you say then in your communities and sphere of influence when somebody says, yeah, I, got, I like a little bit of Jesus. Jesus is just all right for me. Cliff note, John 5, 18. Jesus claims authority as God and they're willing to kill him for it. So he challenges the authority of tradition. Jesus comes right straight out and he's like, hey, I'm God. So Jesus is going to declare his own authority now starting in verse 19. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all the things that he's doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Father does not honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who will hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. As I read through that, how many of you went, well, he went there, he went here, he went there. Wow, Jesus, that's kind of hard to follow. And what I did is I went through the text and I came through there and I just went verse by verse. And what is Jesus saying about this? What's he saying about that? And there's five big ideas that Jesus intersperses through there. And the first of which you'll find in verse 19. That Jesus declares his authority, but he's under the Father's authority. You're like, whoa, he just got done claiming equality with God. Now he's going to say he's under the Father's authority. There's a difference. There's no difference in value. There's a difference in role. How important does Jesus view everybody made in his image? What value statement did he place upon it? He died for it. 
Every image bearer, every person who's ever drawn a breath, Jesus died for. He values it enough to die for it. Does that mean they all hold the same role? No. There's authority. In the Trinity, there is authority. The Father sends the Son, and he does what the Father asks him to do. When the Son is getting ready to leave, who then will he send to the earth? The Holy Spirit. They're all the same, differing roles. Same value, differing roles. Jesus died for everybody. In Ephesians 5, he'll talk about the family, and he talks about the workplace. By the way, authority in the workplace. What does Paul say about you who work for your boss? They're your authority. Do your job incredibly well. Don't you complain about it. Do your job incredibly well. Now, bosses, you're going to give an account because who's the authority of you? Jesus himself. There's always authority. It is, it is only recently in our mindset that we're like, they, I don't, nobody has authority over me. They're in, in, in the home and in the workplace, even in the Trinity itself, there are the equal value, various roles. I could go, I could do a whole sermon here, and I got I told, I left myself a note. Don't stop too long. Jesus has authority on our life. Verse 21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. This is where God is not a deist. God wasn't a cosmic watch winder that set things in motion and it just went, there it goes like a little windy doll thing. And he said, well, when it runs out of juice, I'll judge it someday. No, God is intimately involved in life. This is in 21, 25 through 26, where God, Jesus, says, hey, I have authority over life. Your spiritual life. I'm talking about now, not just eternal life. I'm talking about your breath today is under Jesus' authority. I rule that, Jesus says. I've got the authority to judge, Jesus says in verse 22 and verse 27. And we don't like this. Don't judge me. How many, oh, man, you hear that all the time. I'm sure Miss Sue hears that all the time. Don't you, who do you to judge me? Well, Jesus is like, I got that authority. I will judge you. This has been assigned to me as my role from the Father, and I will do this. By the way, remember John 2, 24 and 25? What do we learn there about Jesus? He's all-knowing. He knows the hearts and motives of people. Now, if I had to go before a judge, I would love to be before a judge who had clear identification of motive, clear identification of all things true. They could just pull that up on our iPod and say, there it all is. Yeah, got it. It's identifiable. I don't need any witnesses. There it is. That's Jesus. Who else would you want to judge you? Lay your hands and hit, you know, kneel before his feet and say, you know my heart's intent. The other scary part about that, we're really good at looking good in front of our friends about, hey, I'm going to go help neighbor Myrtle. And all you're doing is looking for like good in public or something. Jesus knows that stuff too. And I'm going to go help Robbie wash his car. No, I'm just trying to make Rachel make a good lunch. You know, so you know, we got, you know, or however it goes, we'd pull those games. But Jesus is like, hey, I know this. And by the way, 1 Corinthians talks about when as Christians, our motives will be judged by him. 
So Jesus has the authority to judge everybody. Jesus is worthy of honor. I, you know, I can't stop here very long because we have a hard time in our society now to honor anything other than ourselves. And Jesus is worthy of all kinds of honor. If he is God, if he has this authority, he takes a stop and he says, hey, I have the highest position over all authorities. Respect and reverence. And Jesus has the authority over eternal life, verses 24, 28, and 29. From before time, Jesus existed. From before the boundaries of time and space continuum even began, Jesus ruled, then created. Jesus, therefore, has existence after our death. When we choose today, do we have eternal life or eternal death? We set that underneath his rule of authority. He will rule over everything, even in the afterlife. Eternal life in heaven with him, it's cool. You like that kind of stuff? Or is in hell? He rules over that too. It isn't kicked down to garbage disposal, spun up, and then gone, mystically gone for somewhere. He still rules. So Jesus says a lot of big things about himself here. He works under the Father's authority, who then ascribed to him authority. Did you see that? The Father said, hey, you work for me? Cool, got that. Now you're going to do all the judging. He's got authority from the Father, authority over life, authority to judge, and authority over the eternal life. Move to verse 30. I can do nothing on my own, Jesus says. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me. I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was a burning lamp and shining lamp. He was burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who has sent me as he has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have heard, his form you have never seen. And yet you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And is that they bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom have you set your hope? For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus transitions now into literally a courtroom idea. Who will be the four witnesses for Jesus' authority? And Jesus starts out with, look what I've already done. I healed the 38-year-old invalid. The miracles of Jesus are pretty astounding. 
Get this, the invalid wasn't invalid for 3.8 minutes. I have been invalid for 3.8 minutes, and Frank has seen it. I wreck. I'm invalid for four minutes easy. It wasn't 3.8 months. It's 38 years. It's a drastic, major healing. Everybody would know about it. It wasn't just accidental fish oil mixed with some mineral oil and he accidentally slipped on something and got better. No, this is a dude who's been invalid for 38 years. She's like, look what I have already done. And you know the rumor had to spread about turning the water to wine. The molecular change. So look what I've already done. In our lives, do we have the point in reference to when we're interacting with people we know that we can say, look what Jesus has already done. If somebody comes to you and says, what do you care about Jesus? Whoa, 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 wait a second. He did, wow. There's incredible things that Jesus has done in our lives, kind of like a 38-year invalid. He saved us, he's encouraged us, he's changed us, he's led us, he's given us peace, he's given us hope, and he's given us purpose. Talk about big things in life. Which would you rather have, legs or no purpose? So look what Jesus has done. And don't be afraid to share that with people. Why do you care about this Jesus guy? Well, let me tell you, I'm still married because of Jesus. John the Baptist, Jesus says he's a burning light and a shining lamp in the darkness. Think of a great big old neon light on a dark just rainy night and you're going through town and they're running low on gas and it's a bad neighborhood and there's a big old neon light that says cheap gas and it's safe here. You would drive in it. I did that once in the south end of Chicago. Anybody ever been there? John the Baptist was this for Jesus. Hey, 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 he's just screaming out, there he is, boys, there he is, boys. And then when they ask him to clarify that, John gives some incredibly thick theological truths that we studied when we did the two teachers about what John the Baptist taught about Jesus. Not only was he a great neon sign, but he's an incredible teacher. So Jesus is like, look what I have done. Look what John did. And that's why we wrote, read this morning about John. What you go out to see? And what did Jesus call him? Hey, there's no, anybody that's ever been born of a woman, which kind of is you, everybody. There's never been a greater prophet than John. And he was pointing, why was he such a great prophet? He pointing to Jesus. Look what Jesus done. Look at John the Baptist. And what was John the Baptist really good at? Pointing to Jesus, right? How good are we at that? Oh, how's life going? Oh, Jesus has done a really good thing. Or, man, you're not gonna believe it. I just got a, I just got a good review, and I got a race. And how you relate life situations to people is that about you, or is it about pointing to Jesus? Because you know that John didn't have a really good smorgasbord of. Who wants to go on the John the Baptist diet, really, or show, shop at that? Oh, Camel Hair Market. Okay. But he pointed to Jesus. Do we do that? Do we cry out with our tongue and by our life the wonderful works, character, and salvation of what Jesus has given us? And God the Father declared. So you got Jesus, 
But it says, hey, look what I've already done as the first witness. John the Baptist steps up to the, and says, hey, I'm the second witness. And Jesus says, hey, God the Father actually said something. These are the words in the Bible I think should be in royal purple. If you're going to believe Jesus when he talks, we're in red. When the Father talks, that should be like 48 font and purple. He says in John 1, 33 through 34, Hey, John, this is going to be the guy. So God the Father says to John the Baptist, this is going to be the guy when you see this happens. John sees it happens, and he spends the rest of his life till his death saying, that's him. John and Mark 1, 9 through 11, God actually says, that's the guy. And however God would have said that, if it was in the movies, whatever voice they would have used. And then people think, that, wow, it thundered. <laughs> God the Father talked. Yeah, imagine the thunder he used for that bass. But God the Father literally spoke and said, that's him. Do we believe what God the Father has to say about God, Jesus, and his word? So God the Father has spoken twice. How many of us know people or have been there ourselves say, I'll believe it if God tells me himself? Until you hear the thunder talk, that would be like crazy. You'd probably die. Or you'd have a heart attack. Do we believe his account as he's given us that, hey, I did say these things? And finally, the scripture itself. Now move with me to verse 39. I want to make sure you understand something. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. What is Jesus saying? The Bible is not your object of faith. Jesus is. Remember, the, the first guy says, hey, if I would be healed if somebody just give me the water. His object of faith, his object of being hope was getting in the water. This is incredibly important, and we have it in so many ways, and I'll never hear me say this isn't good to study. But I will say this will never save you. The God who loved you and died on the cross for you and promised to come back again is the only one that can save you. You can love this thing and not love Jesus. How do I know that? How do we know that this morning? The PhDs in Old Testament studies who came up with 4,000 other rules, I'm just rounding to 4,000, knew the old T real good and never accepted Jesus. Jesus is the object of our faith. The Bible is not. But trust that the Bible was given to prepare for. What do I mean prepare, prepare for? Trust that the Bible was given to, to prepare for the way of Jesus. Genesis to Malachi. This is God's love story. He's hunting you down. And he's over and over again going to show grace upon grace. And going grace to people who are just like you and I. Boneheaded. We're good on Sunday, and then by Sunday afternoon, we're... So God does a whole bunch of those. And there's some discipline in there. It's like a 70-year captivity, and then he comes back. Okay? But God told his love story. And what does Jesus say? Hey, if you, this was all about me coming. This is the grand crescendo of your text is Jesus showing up. The Bible is the standard by which our activity of faith can and will be measured. The Bible will be the standard by which your faith can and will be measured. 
That's a crazy statement today. God has never given us a command to do without the ability to do it. And where do we know the commands of following him? By the way, he's listing them for us. It's not hard to figure out when God says, what's God's will for my life? Obey him. He's really kind of simple about it. What measure stick was he going to use? I, I told you. I told you. I told you. I told you. I gave you 1,189 chapters about me and how to follow me. This is the measuring stick for how well you can obey him. So where would you learn about how to be successful in life? Right here. Do you imagine the heartbreak in Jesus' heart? Just to pull back a second. All these people who studied his word, and I believe it's his word, and I trusted his word, who studied his word and missed him. Did we do that with kids? We do that with other people. We do it with people we call stupid. Yeah, I've taught you this 5,000 times, and you still haven't got it. Jesus is like, I'm God. I created. I gave you all this opportunity to, through so much time, and I come here, and you love what I've written about me, but not me. How often do we get into the motions of a tradition or the motions of life and we think we got things figured out but we forgot kind of to put God in there? So Jesus' four witnesses. The work that he done, John the Baptist, God the Father, and the Bible. That's a lot of reason to declare the authority of Jesus Christ in our lives today a lot more than the Department of Homeland Security. DHS has got nothing on your eternal life. It might get you there quicker. But God's the one who just says, I got authority over this life here. That's a whole lot of Jesus declaring authority about himself this morning. Tradition, and then saying about himself, and then calling up the four witnesses. How then will we go about in this week to declare Jesus' authority in our life? I would say for one another, let's study God's word together. We do that well on Sundays, and we got a new study going on Wednesdays. But it's also a study to figure out Jesus' authority. How then does loving Jesus have authority in my life at work, with kids, with my neighbor, with my friends? Where does Jesus' authority rest with that? Can we interact with each other to evidence Jesus' authority? What I'm trying to say here, are you large and in charge, or is you interact with other people because Jesus is large and in charge, so you can say, hey, I'll serve. I can do my role, what God has called me to do, incredibly well because he's in charge. You will never hear me say, following Jesus means a, a subservient in all ways to all people. No, God has called people to be in charge at work, in the government, all that. He has. How then will you interact with each other in the body to illustrate that Jesus is in charge and you can work well with others because you're relying on him as being the ultimate authority? That's hard to get through. Finally, for one another, using our God-given gifts that reflect Jesus' authority. Because Jesus says, hey, I want you all to get together on a regular basis to serve one of each other, and I've given you some really cool spiritual gifts to use. Don't squander those out without being around my people. 
Because he said, hey, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit after me, and he's going to give you gifts, and so you can serve one another. How then are you reflecting Jesus' authority in your life by using those gifts with each other? Now, as we go into our communities, do your friends and neighbors know who's the ultimate authority in your life? Now, some of us would say our wives know this. <laughs> but would your friends and neighbors, if you didn't know, if they didn't know I was coming over and I would never do this, and I pull up to your neighbor's house and say, hey, hey, who's his boss? What would they say? That guy will never be underneath nobody. He's an independent sort. Or, yeah, that talks about God all the time like he's in charge or something. Do you talk about Jesus and his authority in your sphere of influence? What I mean by this is where you work, where you hang out. Not just in your community, but then your sphere of influence. Where it is that you spend time. Where your people there, your friends there, know that you talk about Jesus there. And does he have authority in your life in those situations? That's the hard one. Because when we go into work Monday morning, 7 o'clock, we clock in. Do the people around you going to recognize the authority in their life is Jesus? And finally, how do you respond to authority in the public sector just generically? If you ascribe to the idea that Jesus is the Lord and Savior and He is the authority, if He says, I've set these other authorities up and you don't respect them, how does that reflect your view of Jesus' authority? Not so well. You can't be an anarchist and love Jesus. That's all I'm saying. But I will say, he, there's some that's easy and some that's hard. I've worked in a situation where responded to people's authority with honor and respect was incredibly difficult. But also, they will know when you're doing it because, man, I respond to Jesus, has placed them in there, and somehow he's going to use this situation. So they're like, wow, they're actually doing it. Or they're interacting with me that's honor and respectful and shows reverence to, to my role. But they also, how in the world did your coworkers watch you work with them? And they're like, there must be something else that's motivating because the rest of us calculate them as a moron. So as we go into our week, what will Jesus' authority look like in your life in a way that's measurable and markable by the people around you? Here this morning and at work this week. Thanks again for listening. If you have any questions or would like more information about Grace Church of Ocala or the sermon you just heard, please visit our home on the web, ocalagrace.org.